a listener production. Got the grill all fired up for another edition. Welcome, everybody. Rusty, Shane Jacobson and Jeff Willem with you to talk about some news, views, fun stuff happening in our automotive world. First up, a big thanks to those of you who have liked and subscribed, as the kids say. <laughs> uh, tell your mates about the pod. Uh, we're out monthly on Listener or wherever you get your podcast fix. Feel free to rate and review too. I, incidentally, get uh, on occasion genuinely mistaken for Mark Barretta. Someone has said, hey, Barretta's doing a good job on that pod. <laughs> Thank you. Um, coming up, we will drill down into some trends from uh, the recent VFAX results. A leading light for women in automotive will join us as well. And Australia's answer to Doc Emmett Brown, the legendary Dr. Carl, is coming up to decode, demystify changes in our motoring landscape and will things like flying cars ever be a real mainstream thing? Zooming in today via Flying Uber. Hello, Shane Jacobson. Hey, mate. How you doing? Word on the street is, word on the street is there's been some COVID purchases at your place. True or false? Who have you been speaking to? Um, Come on. <laughs> I knew my wife answered weird phone calls at midnight. Now I know who it is. Oh, look, I may or may not have definitely purchased myself a go-kart which is my COVID uh, retail therapy. So, Rotax one two five. I love it in, a, in an arrow arrow frame. So yeah, I uh, brought that and <laughs> my wife said, "What? <laughs> what is that?" <laughs> Trying to convince her it was a piece of art for the wall. It was going to be always going to be a tough sell, wasn't it? Uh, now, our fellow panelist Jeff Willem, CEO of the Victorian Automotive Chamber of Commerce, we give him a, a little bit of grief at times, but we we love him. We you kind of think of him, Shane, don't we, as our James May. Would that be right? Well, I, I actually think it's James Bond, Greg. So uh, <laughs> you, you, you've set me, you've set me this task. You've said, Jeff, get into the Prime Minister's car and 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 uh, interview the Prime Minister. I can't say too much, but uh, there is a window emerging, and I've spoken to somebody this morning, and it's a possibility. This is a big <laughs> step forward. This is huge. <laughs> well, it's the it's the best I've got. He's back from COP. Uh, we we don't know whether he'll want to talk about hydrogen vehicles uh, or vehicles at all. But, uh, you know, life in politics, a week later they get up, they dust themselves off, they're back. They're back on the routine. We promise not to make today all futuristic and electric, etc. What strange things have mechanics found in cars? Plus, as Jeff talked about a moment ago, the new James Bond movie. How good to be going to theatres, some cool cars in that that we'll um, discuss as well. And art in old cars left to die in paddocks. But first, Shane, with our latest edition of Cop This. It's a bit out of the vault, um, and I got reminded about it. I think I kind of sort of tilted to it uh, in the last ep. It's a letter, and I just want to read this one because it made me laugh when I first read it, and it still makes me laugh today. So this is an actual infringement notice that was sent from the police to a guy in New Zealand. Good morning. Uh, in reference to infringement notice, uh, I don't know why it says good morning. The gentleman's obviously assumed that everyone opens their mail in the morning at the uh, police force. Yesterday, I was presented with the above infringement notice while returning home from the Parachute Music Festival at Mystery Creek near Hamilton over the long Auckland anniversary weekend. I had a most excellent weekend, but that's not why I'm writing to you at this time. Unfortunately, there are a couple of irregularities with the infringement notice that are causing me some consternation and hopefully 
entirely. You can clear them up or preferably forget about the whole thing entirely. <laughs> Firstly, the date of the offence is listed as the 23rd of June 1974, with the time being at around half past six in the evening. This is of grave concern to me because I was not issued a driver's licence until sometime in 1990. I have no, des- <laughs> <laughs> I have no desire to be charged for the driving while not legally licensed. I do not have a clear recollection of very much at all before I was three and a half years old, so I rang mum to see if she remembered what I was doing that day. She said that coincidentally, I was born that day. (laughs) Mum mentioned that I was born at about five o'clock in the evening on that day in Pororua, which is not far from Wellington. For me to have travelled from Porirua to... I, am I pronouncing that right, Rusty? Porirua. 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 Travelled from Porirua to the foot of the Bombay Hills just out of Auckland by 6.30. I would have had to have crawled into the first car in the hospital parking lot and headed for Auckland at around about 1,000 kilometres for an hour. The car that I must have crawled into had the same licence plate as the one that I have now. However, my car is a dark grey Nissan Bluebird Triple S with dual cup holders, 800ccs of grunt, air conditioning and electric windows. You'll notice that the time travel option is not included on this model. (laughs) So that rules out any back to the future issues. And the car I was driving back then could not have been the one that I drive today. Beautiful. Thank you for your consideration of my submission. I look forward to hearing your response. Here's the response. Oh, beautiful. I refer to your correspondence regarding the above infringement notice after careful consideration of your comments and circumstances surrounding the issue of this notice. It has been decided on this occasion to waive the offence. (laughs) (laughs) Yours sincerely. There you go. Magnificent. Yes, that's right. The latest V-Facts have been published. Uh, Jeff, probably worth starting with a, a question that we're all often asked. Just clarify the types of vehicles that are included in the monthly VFAX results for us. It's a good question, Greg. Uh, the VFAX figures has got, uh, obviously, cars, uh, light commercial and heavy commercial, which is heavy trucks as well. Um, you've got to dig right into that data, though, because SUVs, which is the biggest category of vehicles sold in Australia, sit in light commercial. So you've got to make sure that when you're talking about the volume of SUVs in Australia, they're actually, a lot of those are uh, tradies, utes and all that sort of stuff as well, as along with, you know, big SUVs, family SUVs, those sorts of things. So that's why that category is so big, because it goes from trade right through to families. So, Jeff, the latest figures show a general improvement in sales. So do you think we're still on for over 1 million million vehicle sales this calendar year, would you say? Yeah, I do, Shane. Uh, We've got a supply, a bottleneck in supply of vehicles. That's both used and new. So we know that post-COVID there will be huge hesitancy, and we can see it in Melbourne right now. People don't want to get on public transport, particularly trains, and the government have got a big job to do um, in Melbourne and, and potentially in Sydney as well about getting people back onto public transport. We're holding on to used vehicles longer. So that's actually aging our vehicle fleet. You know, we got under under a, an average age of 10 years a couple of years ago, uh, down to 9.7. We're back over a 10-year average age of the fleet in Australia. A lot of that's got to do with people hanging on to those old cars a bit longer because they're not going to get on public transport at the moment. I still think we'll at least clear a million cars for the year. Victoria and New South Wales, we're coming out of uh, this COVID lockdown. The other states, I mean, uh, WA, the Northern Territory and Queensland won't have quite the same rush effect because they haven't had the same lockdowns as we've had. 
but people are out there in the market buying cars. And of course, you know, retailers can sell cars you know, heading towards very much the same way that they could before. This is new cars, and uh, that's why I'm still very confident about getting over 1 million G, 1.1 maybe. It'd be great to hit that figure. Just before we bounce through some other headlines, Jeff, the bigger financial picture is an important one here in relation to vehicle sales. What do you believe are the biggest economic threats at the moment and what do they mean for Australia? Because there's lots of talk about that, things like inflation and so on. Look, we've got inflation, we've got energy, we've got the Taiwan situation, there's tensions there. And of course, we've got a property crash in China. And and somebody might ask, well, that's a bit global, Jeff, you know, what are we, That how's that going to affect us here? Remembering that apart from uh, a very small volume niche passenger cars, trucks and commercial. We don't build vehicles in Australia. They all, all arrive at the dockside. So we are um, really, any of, the, any of those ripples in economies overseas will have a di- direct impact on what, what arrives here. Let, let's look at rising inflation to start with. Coming out of COVID, we don't have enough labour uh, in Australia to get the job done. When you've got a shortage of labour, wages go up. When wages go up, costs go up. I can tell you right now, there are mechanics jobs being advertised for $100,000. $100,000 for mechanics jobs. I was in regional Victoria this weekend. Half the shops weren't even open because there was no staff. And uh, when you don't have staff, it does all sorts of weird things with your economy. Wages go up. Um, Nobody's going to complain about that. I wouldn't have thought in Australia. Um, But prices go up and that starts to drive that inflationary uh, situation. So that's a big one. And we've got to really hope that the bank rate stays uh, low because, of course, defaults on mortgages. Sort of, If you start, if bank rates start to go up, uh, interest rates go up, uh, default rates go up. Uh, by the way, very quickly, the automotive industry and the VACC, we're talking to government now about getting migration uh, back up over 200,000 skilled migrants or 200,000 migrants, half of those are skilled migrants coming back into Australia every year. We're saying to the federal government, We've got to speed the process up so we can get these people here on the job, doing these, uh, carrying out these jobs as quickly as possible. For more on the latest VFAX and any trends that might have emerged in October, probably worth following the VACC, Victorian Automotive Chamber of Commerce, on socials. And all sorts of things are covered there, uh, industry topics, regulation changes and more. Uh, wanted to quickly put, Jeff, a full stop on some news that you broke in the last EP2, which was terrific. The Australian Grand Prix is all go for next year. April's the mooted date in the calendar. Uh, Won't be the season opening round of F1, which has been a tradition for much of Melbourne's tenure. Um, I'm sure they've got really good plans for this after seeing the massive party in Texas. What, What a race meeting. And as for the Monaco of the South happening in Sydney, the AGPC boss, Andrew Westacott, is determined to keep this thing in Melbourne beyond 2025. And there is more than a few that think Sydney is a pipe dream? I think Sydney is a pipe dream. Uh, my view is is that Melbourne won this back. We've got a contract that goes through to 2025 at least. And I think Andrew and the team have done a great job. And uh, look, let's not forget the devastating situation we are in a couple of years ago when I was walking around the park in Faulkner Park in Melbourne and I'm speaking to a colleague. He's in the UK telling me the Grand Prix being cancelled. I'm hearing the cars going round from the park. He's And as he's telling me in the UK, the, the Australian Grand Prix is being cancelled, the car engines stop. And it was the most devastating effect uh, for the Grand Prix and for the 
you know, for the community in Victoria and Australia, it's a, a terrible thing. It's uh, and you know, I think that the the Victorian Victorian government, Greg, would fight tooth and nail to have that thing. There's no way in the world we're going to give up the Grand Prix out of Victoria. Speaking of entertainment, how good is it that movie theatres are back? My mate Shane, Jake, yeah. yeah, my mate Shane will be loving that. New James Bond movie is out. I saw it on the first day and loved it. Won't spoil it for you in the podcast here uh, if you haven't seen it, but the list of star cars and the kind of cameo appearances for best actors with wheels includes an unbelievably beautiful, restored Aston DB5, stunning. The baddies are in Maseratis. There's an appearance by a Land Rover Series 3, I think it was. Um, quick straw poll before we move on. Have you got a fave Bond car, you two? And maybe our listeners, if you've got a favourite Bond car, info at thegrillpodcast.com.au. What is it? Well, I'm going to surprise you guys here because you're going to you're going to say he's going to go for a British brand, obviously, and he's going to... How about this? The Toyota 2000 GT. Ooh! Huh? <laughs> Okay, you, you only live twice, 1967. Sean Connery. <laughs> Sean Connery, 351 of them made, one of them sold in the UK and two thousand sorry, in the USA for, in 2013 for 1.2 million US dollars. Now, it's not the two-litre engine that's uh, getting me excited, by the way. It's the shape, body shape, very nice. Um, it's got a Jag sort of sports front end if you look at it. But, um, you know, I look through all of those cars, Greg, and, and actually, you know, uh, it's unlike me, but here the Toyota 2000 GT, it's a great-looking car. I mean, just look at the, the, the shape of the car. It's nice of you to see, Sean. Thank you very much, Richard. <laughs> <laughs> That's Sean the Connery. worst Sean Connery ever done. <laughs> Shane, as you came into the studio today, uh, you were a bit heartbroken, mate, about the end of a very special piece of motorsport real estate in Australia. Yeah, it's Sandown. And for those that haven't heard, um, we've only got about probably two years left, I think it is at the moment, to watch, you know, cars race around Sandown. Um, Obviously supercars, but not only that, you know, I've got a ton of mates that use that um, for drive days and and track days and and what it now means is... Um, and just so you know, they're, they're, they're saying uh, it's the Melbourne Racing Club. They're saying that due to the shortage of housing, um, that's why they've had to get rid of the real estate. Um, the truth is, I, I think they probably need the money, and it's a big plot of land. It's a gold mine, there, isn't yeah. it? Really? The, yeah. And it's, I mean, honestly, the bulldozer. Honestly, they'll turn up with a tractor and knock down the handrails, and and the, the thing's ready to go. It's a flat, you know, it's a flat bit of land. And it, and as I said, it's a big bit of land in a built-up area. But it's that thing now where just watching the tracks disappear. We all love, we don't love cars any less. Um, it's just there's less places to to safely um, travel at speed or trial out, you know, if you buy a sports car, we obviously know we don't want to be going quick on the roads. And so the place you do this is, is racetracks. Um, and sometimes they're not a racetrack. You are going for a drive day where you get a chance to have someone skillful get in the car with you and up your skills, you know, and I, I get it. We're, we're more keen on motorsport and cars than most people, and so it probably sounds like I'm overstating it, but we're about to lose. I mean, it, it, another piece of canvas has been taken away from motorsport artists. It's it's somewhere else we can't paint, if you will. And I can't think, you know, they're not, imagine if, just for anyone out there who goes, you know, I, I get it, but is it really that bad? Imagine if tennis courts were disappearing out of suburbs as fast as our racetracks. Imagine if swimming pools were disappearing from people who like to swim. I like to drive cars. 
was, well, I'm running out of places to do it. A couple of quick ones to finish. We've got some great mechanics that listen to the show, members of the VACC. I get nervous about the state of my interior now. Uh, the next time I'm taking the family truckster for a service. These are the top fines by mechanics when they're working on cars. Weird stuff, right? Oh, do you mean, you mean stuff left behind? Behind, in the car. So he, he, here's, here's one. <laughs> Someone, someone cooking brisket in alfoil wrapped around the exhaust. Big hello to Manu and to Gordon Ramsay, if you're listening. Uh, oh, so, so, so someone had left, put it there, and obviously yes. left, forgotten. Yes. Um, that's I've got. That, that's you've taken me back to an era. We, my, my, my stepfather worked with a guy who used to make a toasted sandwich at no home, way. wrap it in foil. He had a piece of wire across the, his engine. He used to sit it on top of his engine, wire that on, drive to you know in winter to wherever he was going to work and when he got there he'd get out his toasted sandwich out of his fall and eat it warm crazy (laughs) the mechanical engineer who found a loaded pistol with a wooden hand grip at his feet while doing a downshift on a test run that'll get your attention (laughs) that leads us not the gun but our industry stories to our first guest today from our partner denso President and CEO Gavin Keenan from Denso Automotive Systems Australia is on the line. Gavin, welcome. Good morning, gents. Thanks for having us on. I really appreciate it. Great to chat with you. People mightn't realise, but if I'm right here, the global R&D engineering facility is actually located right here in Australia for you guys, in Croydon, in Victoria. Yeah, that's right. Uh, After the industry closed in 17, we we restructured the company and uh, we established a pretty unique engineering division here that's centred around some of the facilities we have on site. Uh, We use those facilities such as a wind tunnel and a coic test chamber and a whole lot of other uh, uh, facilities to support Denso globally. We have just been talking about James Bond on the show, the latest movie. So I'm kind of picturing this Q-style lab at Denso HQ. What what things are you working on or what things can you share with us that you're working on? I, I assume some of it you need to keep a lid on, which we understand. Yeah, I do. Uh, a lot of the stuff is is um, is automotive uh, developed, uh, but it's it's around some key themes for Denso like like comfort and safety. Um, so we have the we have the chamber there that can do minus twenty up to plus fifty. So pretty much simulate any environment on the on the face of the earth, and we're using that to test not only uh, our passenger comfort inside the car, but also the quality of the of the cooling uh, uh, and thermal systems that are that are uh, located in the car. Gavin, I, I live in uh, regionally in Victoria at the Macedon Ranges. If you ever have trouble with some of that equipment, feel free to stay at my place. My house varies between minus 20 and 50. <laughs> no, yeah, no worries, Shane. I, I can tell you I've had personal experience of doing uh, 45 degrees and 60% relative humidity in that chamber, and it is severe, I can tell you. It's, it's probably something you don't want to be exposed to for anything more than about five minutes, basically. The company has some fantastic history, Gavin. I mean, the, the parent company goes back to 1949 in, in Japan, been in Australia since 1972. The great point you're making in this discussion here is that you actually do more things than just spark plugs too, which you guys are so well-renowned for. With the change with the change in the automotive industry that, that you alluded to before, the way everyone's evolving, adapting, the, the changes we went through with the closure of big plants and so on, has there been a, a, a shift for you guys and what kind of things are you, are you working on in that regard for the future? Yeah, Denso globally is, has shifted a lot uh, in the last uh, sort of uh, five to ten years. The initial themes were things like um, uh, autonomous driving, but actually we've expanded in a lot of areas, um, both within automotive and outside of automotive. 
our global themes really are actually uh, safety and uh, and peace of mind. So Denso is really focused on delivering uh, safety uh, solutions, be it within the automotive field as well as, as outside, and then also in tackling things like environmental uh, problems. Automotive manufacturing, uh, Denso was synonymous with the automotive industry, still is today. It's a brand, you know, you sort of wonder why do they have to market this brand? It's everywhere. People in the industry sort of, it's in their DNA. Does ever, anybody ever say, but I wonder if we'll ever make cars again in Australia? Does that conversation come up? You know, do you guys have a dream about that? Uh, I certainly have a dream like that, yeah. Uh, I, I can't really say. It, it comes up from time to time. Um, I, I can't really say whether or not that will come back, uh, it, particularly in a volume sense. Uh, but I think what you see occasionally with people trying uh, bespoke solutions and custom solutions, there might be a place for that. I think I think maybe uh, volume production is, is you know, not something that's that's going to return. Uh, but I think there's a lot of clever Australians that can really offer some great products if they put their mind to it. So, Gav, a uh, quick question, a chance for you to kind of plug the business a bit. Um, as Rusty said before, when I think Denso, I think spark plug. But just just for the listeners, can you give an idea of the range of stuff you do? Uh, you know, I'm, you do spark plugs, but you do also, you know, radiators and stuff. I imagine the people that work in those departments don't hang out together. <laughs> Go to the list. <laughs> Well, if you've ever if you've ever been to, uh, I've, I've spent a lot of time in Denso's campus in in Japan, and it's uh, I think it's about twelve thousand people on site. So yeah, it's a bit big. Uh, but to come back to your question, yeah, we do we do uh, spark plugs, uh, thermal products such as uh, compressors, condensers, uh, radiators. These are all our more traditional uh, products. Uh, fuel pumps, O2 sensors. Um, diesel products. Uh, we've got an extensive diesel support network throughout Australia to to support our our, our customers. Uh, I've got to give a plug. Uh, if you're interested in, in in a part or you need something, check out denso.com.au. Uh, we've got uh, particularly with COVID, we've really doubled down on on a lot of our uh, our digital uh, capability there, and uh, we're strengthening that all the time for. Uh, to give to give our our customers and our users uh, you know a lot of information about about how to access Denso products. Can we leave our listeners today with a little fun fact? Is it true that you guys invented the QR code that we are now using damn well everywhere in our lives? Yes, it is. It is. It was originally developed to improve our robustness on our production lines uh, because barcodes were were getting damaged. Uh, but Denso developed it and then made it free for the world. And now, yeah, it's pretty ubiquitous, isn't it, in, in, in what we do every day. So so that's one of our contributions to the world for sure. So if I buy a spark plug from you now, Gav, can you tell me what sort of gap I need and also if I have COVID? Like, can you do both of these? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, can, I say, can I just end that with, uh, we're working on it, Shane. We're, we're, we're working on it as best we can. <laughs> Gavin, thank you for talking to us today. Great stuff. Thank you. Thanks, gents. This is, in some ways, a timely chat with Glasgow 21, the climate conference. Um, automotive is on the cusp of big mainstream change. In fact, beyond the cusp, if we're, if we're really honest. Dr. Karl Kruselnitsky is a bit of a national treasure. He's written almost 50 books, popularised science on all sorts of radio and television shows. He's been awarded the Order of Australia and more. And he is just a fascinating person to speak to. And he's on the line. Dr. Carl, welcome. Ahoy, Dr. Greg. <laughs> I wish I was a doctor. I'm not. For our audience, can I start with a, a, a little fun one? I understand in a former life you were 
a taxi driver. Now, our panel would have given you a five-star rating. What kind of car was it? And and the trips, the discussions on those those taxi rides would have been awesome, Dr. Carr. I do remember that nobody liked the Holdens. <laughs> uh, I drove 400,000 kilometres. Uh, and the Holdens, nobody liked the Holdens. They weren't very comfortable. Um, on the other hand, the Falcons were really nice. Um, they wouldn't quite hit the ton, so whenever you got a, a Valiant, you'd uh, take it for a bit of a fang past the airport about 3 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> um, and my record was Sydney to Parramatta in 15 minutes, Sydney to Rugby in 15 minutes, and Manny to the city in 10 minutes, but one of my friends did Manny to the city in 8 minutes. <laughs> Dr. Cal, can we dive into some some car and and future sort of topics around them. Um, Firstly, flying cars. Are are they a genuine mainstream prospect or do you think sort of, you know, it's a a back to the future sort of sci-fi movie dream? What do you think? Yes and no. On one hand, uh, helicopters are fiendishly difficult to fly and require massive and expensive maintenance. However, the same sort of technology but distributed into four or more vertical propellers, you know, lined up differently at 90 degrees, so parallel to the ground, um, means that with computer control, a virtual dummy could just fly it. You know, people fly quadcopters all over the place. So on one hand, the technology is becoming available. There is another factor. Remember the unofficial motto of the US Air Force, which is that with enough energy, a pig will fly. (laughs) Yes, it is technically possible to have quad rotor vehicles flying people around. The disadvantage is that when they fail, everybody dies. If your car breaks down while you're driving it, well, you just sort of roll to the side of the road. If your flying car breaks down, you then plummet, uh, probably reaching a terminal velocity of 200 kilometres per hour and everything gets really messy. So that's the factor against for flying cars. There's also the traffic management thing. I, I, I met a gentleman at an event in Perth, an American gentleman, who was on a committee because of the amount of drones that there, there are now. Mm. It would be a big problem, wouldn't it, the amount of air traffic, wouldn't there? Yes. What you need to get around that is a combination of AI married to deep situational awareness. That's a phrase that um, pilots use. Um, and when you lose situational awareness, bad things can happen. Now, the situational awareness would be, in this particular case, that each drone would be aware of the location and velocity um, of every other drone. Is that a bit like uh, swarm, swarm technology? If you've got bees, a thousand bees can fly into a beehive and not hit each other. How do they do it? Yeah, so if you read the literature, bees are actually quite clumsy and they run into each other all the time. However, they do so at relatively low velocities and they can sort of afford this as part of collateral damage in having aerial manoeuvring combined with a relatively low death rate among the bees. Autonomous cars, I mean, we want to talk um, energy sources in a minute, but autonomous cars, Dr. Carl, how far away is mass use of them? Is it workable, do you think? It is workable, providing you've got the telecommunications infrastructure in your country. So in China and Mongolia, yes. Australia, no. And by the way, this is a bit of a surprise to you, but in because simply because we don't have the reliable phone network, they've got to be able to talk to each other and know where the other cars are and have full situational awareness. This might be a surprise to you, but Australia has virtually the same GDP as Russia. You mentioned earlier about 
manufacturing cars and uh, Greg was just going to start to talk about if we did make cars in Australia today, uh, what would they be? What types of cars would they be? And, you know, this this tension and this ongoing dilemma around the energy sources that we're going to use. Um, so let's just say, uh, Dr. Carl, you're responsible for opening up a new car plant in Australia next year. You're putting your blueprint on the table. What's in that blueprint about the type of car, the level of autonomy, and what fuel source are you going to use? Well, that depends upon what's happening here in Australia. So you need to look at the geography and the... Um where the people are in Australia. So we're a big country, about 5 million square kilometres. 40% is too dry to grow crops on and another 40% is counted as desert with a rainfall of under, um, sorry, 20% plus 20% rainfall of under uh, 200 millimetres a year. So a lot of Australia, you can't grow stuff in. We've got 80% 80% of the population living in the five festering stores that we call cities because of poor planning by government and states. So we've got massively overcrowded cities and not enough decentralisation. We've got roughly a million kilometres of road, half of which is sealed and half of which is not. Very few people go into the outback. I have been a test driver of four-wheel drives for a couple of years, for a couple of decades, and on my longest trip, started off at Alice Springs, went west for 1,000 kilometres, turned right, went north for a thousand kilometres and saw only one other group of travellers in that entire month. Our vehicle weighed five and a quarter tonnes at taking off. It was a four-wheel drive Volvo C304 military vehicle with um, reduction hubs, you know, the portal axles. And we were carrying a tonne of liquid. We were carrying 600 litres of fuel. So 150 plus 150 in the onboard tanks, that was 300 in standard configuration because I added the extra 150-litre tank, plus 300 in various drums that we took out with us and then dumped at the end of it. Now, that sort of driving is really extreme. And for that, you organise normally a wheel drop with a six-wheel drive coming out of Mount Newman to drop off some stuff at Well 34 for you. Very few Australians do that. The overwhelming majority of Australian driving can be done with an electric vehicle. In the city of Sydney, 25% of the trips are under five kilometres. 50% of the trips are under 30 kilometres. They're just little shuttles. So, um, and we're heading with the battery technology advancing so that we can indeed deal with, we're heading towards a thousand kilometre battery, city to city on one run. We haven't got it today, um, but we are getting closer to it. So I'd overwhelmingly go for a motor vehicle powered by electricity and finally to finish off in Europe and now in America, the car manufacturers have shut down all their research and development on internal combustion engines. They're still making them for a while, but they're not developing them. And all the research and development money is going into electric cars. But who knows what Australia does because we seem to have a science-free government. <laughs> well said. Doctor, I'm, I'm an ambassador for, a Bridgestone ambassador for the World Solar Challenge that attracts these incredible students from all over the world that come here, they land in Darwin and using the power of the sun and, and batteries on board, they, they travel from Darwin all the way to Adelaide. And it, it's a pretty incredible distance. I assume you know where I'm going with this, which is that that is the perfect marriage, do you think, which is having a car which uses batteries to power the car, but it gets its energy to resupply that from the sun, which as we know is God's gift to us for free. Yeah, the trouble is that the amount of power that a car uses is more than the power that lands on the car. There was a politician recently who said, how is it possible to use solar energy at night 
And the answer to that is, how is it possible to get water out of a tap when it isn't raining on your house? <laughs> <laughs> right, we store it somewhere. So basically, the amount of power you can get from the sun on your car is maybe three, maybe two kilowatts, whereas the engine... Uh, needs 50 or 100 kilowatts. So it will increase, I've seen the figures, your mileage by having solar cells on the car by about 1,800 kilometres a year. But you really need more power to run a car. So in my case, I've got an old... um, a Japanese 10-year-old hybrid car and it's got solar cells in the roof which work the aircon to keep it cool when you get into the car. So you will get a boost but the two or three kilowatts you'll get from the sun is nowhere enough to get from 0 to 100 in four seconds which seems to be compulsory these days. Dr. Carl, we're going to run out of time here. We could do this for ages. This is this is fascinating. Two two quick ones to finish if we can. We have a, a listener question from Graham in Borkham Hills who asks, could idle electric cars be used to uh, as battery banks to power houses or the grid when they're needed. Can you see that sort of thing happening? This is part of the plan uh, ever since the early days for the last 10 years and some uh, electric vehicles already have that capability that they can talk into the house. And there's a nice coincidence that 20 kilowatt hours is roughly what your house uses in a day my house uses 10 because we're ultra efficient. Um, and 20 kilowatt hours is what my solar panels generate in a day. And 20 kilowatt hours will take your car 100 kilometres. So yes, we need a different way of using electricity in the future. With regard to climate change, it's ridiculously simple. We can fix 90% of all climate change simply by keeping fossil fuels in the ground. And the alternatives that exist will be both cheaper and cleaner. Hey, Dr. Carl, you touched on it a moment ago. What's your daily drive? Um, Got two drives. Uh, One is the uh, Prius, which I love, and the other one is the Kia Stinger, which I also love for different reasons. And I'm really hanging out to get an electric car. You are, sir, an incredible communicator. We love the the thought of you coming on and, and chatting with us today. You're doing some fabulous stuff on radio, as you have for years, and a library of unbelievable books as well. Dr. Carl, thank you very much for talking to us today. Thank you. My pleasure. Molly Taylor, Australian Rally Champion, Extreme E-Star, is with us on the next ep of The Grill, doing some great things in the broadcasting space and reviewing, actually, uh, in automotive as well. Passionate, very passionate about women in motorsport. Today, we wanted to continue putting a spotlight on women in automotive doing some incredible things. And we had Carly Ruggieri on the show recently. Our member guest today is Menka Michaelides, business manager and co-owner from Pro Repair Auto Centre in North Melbourne. A big welcome to you. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thanks very much for having me on. Can you share with us what was the catalyst? What was the thing that drove you to pursue a career in the automotive industry? Well, um, I sort of fell into it, I suppose. I um, had taken redundancy from a previous role and I was contemplating on what I wanted to do. Um, and Steve, who's my husband and owns Pro Repair, he needed some something done in the office, some work done in the office. And typically you could just imagine, you know, the set of guys, um, not fa- fantastic on the floor, but not actually great when it comes to the back end of things, so the back of shop. So I turned up um, to help out initially just for a couple of days. 
Um, I think I walked in, I, I sort of did my stack um, about how bad the office looked. And then I thought, you know, I'll do a month here and then I'm just totally out of here because this is not for me. I thought this industry is not for me. Um, and then I stayed. So that's been six years now. So I've been in the business um, and ownership with him for, for six years. He's been in it for much longer than I have. Um, and, you know, when I first arrived, I sort of thought, oh, it's a bit... It's a bit blokey. Um, not that that bothered me because I'm fairly thick-skinned, but I just thought, oh, I don't know if I could really do this. Um, but I just saw opportunity. I saw for us opportunity in terms of it's our business. I can put transfer some really good skills that I have. And I saw that it was already a business. It was already built as a business. It just needed that fine-tuning um, so really the potential was there and it had opportunity for me to implement some systems. So that's why, really, I joined him. Menka, it's Jeff here. Um, look, I've been to your workshop, okay, and it is evident that somebody in there is organising things, okay, Be- and, I'll, and I'll tell you why. You've got, you do some great prestige cars in there and you've got some great work going through the workshop. But I came down and we did that EPA filming down there a couple of months ago and and, and I stood in the office and spoke to you for 10 minutes there, and I go to a lot of workshops, okay? And I can tell when I go in whether the joint's actually being managed really well, not just from the, I mean, we, you know, fixing cars is one thing, but you've got to have this other side of the business running really well. And I have to tell you that I had great confidence in the business because in that office, Menka, it was like clockwork in there. Things were in the right order and somebody was in control and I think you've done a great job in that business. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks. Yeah, and look, honestly, I think in I found in this particular industry that was something that lacked. In fact, when I first joined Steve, I thought, gee, this would be a really good business model to go around businesses and implement some processes for them, get things done for them. Um, like, don't get me wrong, when I first arrived, the first thing I did, I think I was here for a week for a week, and I called VACC and the first thing I said is, hey, what do I get for my membership? Pay the dollars, what do we get? <laughs> awesome. Right? But it was good because then I was introduced to, you've, there's, you know, the the, um, the HR component, there's the um, work sort of safe component, there's all these different components, there's all these bulletins that come out that I don't think the guys really... Um, looked at as much as they should have been. Minka, I'd, I'd love to steal your voice to talk to our audience because one thing on the show we talk about a fair bit is about the job shortages, uh, you know, the, the lack of skills available because there's 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 jobs out there waiting. Um, Jeff talks about it a lot. There's jobs out there available for, for, for young men and women who are thinking about a, a new direction or just whatever career they're going to take on. What would you say to young girls and boys now who are at a crossroads or a T-intersection where they don't know what they want to do for a job, who are, who are listening to us now or maybe their parents are and you could say something to them to maybe get them just to take one little look in your direction to contemplate perhaps a career in automotive? Do you know what? It's that um, it's a bit like the Nike ad. Just do it. <laughs> Honestly, I um, what's being launched just recently? There's a program called Accelerating Women into Auto, so it's funded, and it gives them an opportunity to see. So, what's auto all, all about? I mean, I never ever thought I'd work in an auto. I, I just never thought I would. I'd come in, I'd get my car serviced with Steve, and I'd leave. You know, I, ju- I just didn't think it was really where I wanted to be. But when I arrived, I just found everything that I was doing in previous jobs 
I could do here. You know, stock is stock. Um, sales is sales. And you know what? It's not necessarily grimy anymore. I think from a female perspective, as a business owner, I really want that perspective. And I've got to admit, being in it as a female now, our clientele has changed. Like I would say that to businesses, you know, you have some females in your shop, your clientele starts to change. Their behaviours start to change. You know, there's a real professionalism, I think. Everyone steps up. Minka, it's been awesome to talk to you. Your organisational skills, your uh, passion for the game is infectious. We love what you are doing with women in automotive. So keep uh, keeping on in that regard. And to you, Steve, and to all of the team there, um, go well. Thanks for chatting to us. Thank you. Just going to dive into the virtual glove box and sift through some of your mail. One here uh, for Jeff from Anna in Docklands. Um, you talked about skills and industry staff shortages. I think even even Menka reflected on that in our chat with her as well. Um, how do we make working in the auto industry cool again so that kids want to pursue this? It's a really good question, Greg. Um, I think technology is going to do it for us. So uh, as cars move forward, uh, new electric cars, hydrogen cars, even the conventional petrol and diesel vehicles now, they're bristling with technology it's about computer diagnostics. It's about fault finding. It's not uh, It's not about the old stuff. There's a lot of workshops that will never drop an engine out of a vehicle. They're doing diagnosis. And for me, that's cool. Yeah, definitely. Terry from Williamstown wanting to know from Shane about the one that got away. Has there been a car or bike that you sold that you should have maybe kept? Or was there one that you even sort of ummed and about uh, in the buying process and you missed out on? I had a 1976 pop top camper um, that I couldn't get under. I couldn't get under under a roof to keep it dry, and I watched it sitting out there, and it was just starting to get a bit dishevelled. And I actually got rid of that, and I regret that. And I even I had the registration I got for it was VWVWV. So it just looked like one constant oh, wiggle. Uh, that's cool. So that's the one yeah. I regret. Uh, Rusty, I've actually got. I've got one for you. I've got a, uh, oh. a, a listener one here for you. Um, Why is producer Ed looking at me here? <laughs> What's don't, going uh, on Ed, here? don't say anything. <laughs> Ed, don't say anything. Ed, can you do me a favour? Can you just play the audio? This is uh, this is from one of our listeners. Hi, Shane and Jeff. It's Georgie Rust here. I need some help with buying my first car. I turned 16 in a couple of months and my parents have been helping me find the right one. Dad's old boss from Channel 10 and Mark Webber have both said he should buy me a Porsche. Should Dad buy me a 911? <laughs> welcome to a, welcome to a new segment called Stitched. Uh, Rusty, that's your daughter, obviously. Oh, who I love dearly. But I've got to play selfish here. I want the 911 first. Yeah, oh, you Why are. is she going to jump, jump the you queue? You know what, mate? I'm going to stitch. Uh, we're going to stitch two segments together here. As you know, normally at the end of the show, we do the blow it out your tailpipe segment. <laughs> is, is this where you tell your daughter she can blow it out the tailpipe? Or is she getting a 911? <laughs> She's not getting a 911 chain. <laughs> oh, there it is. Blow it out your tail, So, so 16, I've got to ask, as a parent, uh, 16, she's about to get on the road, uh, have a car in her hands. How are you feeling? Terrified? Every parent is, uh, aren't they? Uh, uh, a little bit. A little bit excited for her, her as well. She's really studying um, very hard. And, and she's one of those kids, Shane, I mean, there's, you know, as a proud parent, you want them to to save a little bit for these things. So she's she's done some of that. She's working towards it. Um, in our world, 
I, I want something with a five star safety rating, something yes. that's, that's economical and good. Um, this is this is something perhaps for the three of us for a, a coming episode about buying your first car and and um, the things to to look out for and, and and so on. Well, I know we've all had this conversation a million times, which is the old the older dads used to be. I'm not going to give my kid a good car; they're just going to smash it, and they go out and buy them an old paddock bomb. And you go, if you really loved your kids, you'd buy yourself a paddock bomb and you hand them your car with the airbags. Correct. But as we know, thank goodness now, just about everything, we well, most things, and I guess that would be our advice if we had to leave on anything. If you're going to buy your kids a yeah. car, just make yep. sure it's got yeah, airbags definitely. and all the stuff that helps them stay alive. Most definitely. You can follow Georgie's lead if you want to and send us a little bit of audio into the show. Info at thegrillpodcast.com.au. Don't forget we're on socials at the Shane Jacobson, at VACC official, at Thruster One. That is it. <laughs> for Shane, Jeff and all the team, uh, we'll catch you next time, everyone. Bye for now. See you on the road, folks. Listener.